everyone. Welcome. Please let me know if you can hear me. Uh, sorry, I'm late. Um, I was trying to figure out a feature to add links, uh, a link to this show because I covered a bit um, about what I'm going to talk about there. So, uh, yeah, I'm following up on a few things I've covered on the left lens. There's a lot to talk about. It's been a while. Apologies for the delay. Lots of things happening on my end, and I got caught up, so I'm going to try to do some catch-up by doing several episodes, um, hopefully in short time over the next few days. So... Welcome, everyone. Uh, if you're not following this program already, uh, please do. Just go to the Cold War Brew icon and just subscribe to this show. Uh, but welcome. Welcome, everyone who is here. And we can get started. So I guess I'll just react to the topic of this first and, and definitely get in the queue because I want to make this discussion. So if anyone has anything on their mind at all, um, I like to prioritize the callers as I go through some of these topics. So um, I'm going to get to the first caller. I'll get to you in the next couple of minutes. Peta, I see you waiting. So definitely get in the queue. And hopefully, you know, I'm going to try to make this 45 minutes to an hour. And I'm just going to talk for 5, 10 minutes. Uh, first, I want to talk about Trump. The Trump Mar-a-Lago raid, as you know, over the last several days, this has been top news coverage in the corporate media. Uh, there was an FBI raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. He wasn't there at the time. And now there's a whole conversation about what is this all about? Why is the FBI doing this now? There's, of course, the FBI's narrative, which is they're looking now for espionage, right? And this has been a narrative since... Russiagate, that Trump is colluding with foreign powers, namely Russia, and that uh, Donald Trump needs to be uh, punished for this. Of course, the Mueller report produced absolutely nothing. Russiagate is a big fraud, but we don't have to go into all of that. There are plenty of journalists who have done great work on that, including people like Aaron Mate. But the point here is, is that we have another example of a Donald Trump being the scapegoat for uh, the ruling class in a very sensitive time in the United States. But one thing that's very troubling about all of this, and has been troubling for many years now, has been troubling since Russiagate, is that uh, the Democratic Party, and really the entire political establishment, because all of them are in on this, this is a broad strategy that benefits the entire foreign policy establishment, they are rehabilitating and using what is called the quote-unquote deep state now. But really, we're just talking about the real state. We're just talking about the shadow state, the military intelligence state. They're being rehabilitated uh, through this process. And uh, this all started with the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton, creating a big tent of national security state operatives, GOP, uh, disillusioned GOP establishment members who were opposed to Donald Trump in an attempt to essentially turn the Democratic Party into the most effective, which it already had been, but the most effective 
arm, political arm of U.S. imperialism. And uh, I like to say that Barack Obama helped kill the anti-war movement and then Russiagate and this whole anti-Trump phenomenon helped bury it. And so that's what's happening again here. And what's most troubling about this is the Espionage Act has come up. For those who don't know what the Espionage Act is, this was passed in 1917. Not, not so, not unironic. World War One was happening. The Soviet Union uh, was coming into play. Right there was a socialist revolution afoot in Russia, and uh, its uh, republics. You know that eventually became the Soviet Republic, Eastern Europe, parts of Eastern Europe, and so. The United States passed a draconian law, two of them. One was the Espionage Act, which really targeted anti-interventionists, peace journalists, and really communists. A lot of uh, what would become the FBI raids, it was called the Bureau of Investigation at the time, conducted a number of raids. And it was used as a for, uh, to bolster xenophobia. So many of you may not know that Eastern European immigrants, right, people from Eastern Europe, people from really much of the world were banned from emigrating to the United States on the basis that they would foment right unrest. It was the first Red Scare. And somebody in the chat said Eugene Debs. Yes, Eugene Debs was a victim of the Espionage Act. He was said to be colluding with foreign powers and he was imprisoned uh, for this. And so and it was all because he spoke out against the war. And so this wasn't an uncommon phenomenon. This uh, thousands of people would come uh, victim of this. And after the Espionage Act, you had the um, Sedition Act, which was even more draconian. It extended the scope of the uh, of the Espionage Act to include any activity and any speech that criticized the U.S. government. So. At this point, you had strikes, the 1919 strike wave, which coincided with the rise of the Soviet Union and the increasingly anti-capitalist sentiment among the working class. And a lot of this was not about, okay, the war is happening and we have to, uh, we have to stop anti-war sentiment. It was mostly about how to suppress dissent. And, of course, the Espionage Act... Uh, many of you may know this, but Julian Assange is a target of the Espionage Act. And uh, so was Daniel Ellsberg, right? So whistleblowers have been the main target of this. Julian Assange right now is rotting in a maximum security prison because of this act. And he's being accused of colluding with Russia, of course, with absolutely no evidence, but it does. It's not about evidence; it's about repression. And there's also one notable case. Someone mentioned Eugene Debs, but I want to talk about perhaps uh, maybe the fate that Julian Assange will, if we don't do anything about this, but what he could ultimately suffer it once, he, if and when he is extradited to the United States, and that is the case of. Ethel and Julia, uh, uh, Julius Rosenberg. So during the Cold War in the 1950s, right, the second Red Scare, uh, 
Julius Rosenberg was a communist, and he was in the Communist Party. So was Ethel, but he was much more active. And, you know, they were uh, lived in New Jersey, based in New York. They um, did organizing, and they were accused by the FBI to be spies for the Soviet Union. Now, none of this was really proven or demonstrated, right? Of course, there was evidence produced, but uh, their children believe that this was of just as was the case in so many instances of, of this accusation, that it was trumped up, that these charges were trumped up and the evidence was literally produced. There might have been evidence produced, but it was literally made up. And that's been a struggle for many, many years, even into uh, the last several as the Rosenberg sons still try to clear their name, but they were executed. They were executed in night in the 1950s, 1953. Um, and that's the, that is what espionage act produces. It produces examples. That's what the FBI, that's what these intelligence agencies are all about producing examples to scare people from dissenting. So now we're in a different period where Donald Trump has created this kind of instability, right? The rise of Trump. It's not because Donald Trump is some sort of subversive character. It's because the political conditions that produce Donald Trump are uh, allowing for cracks and fissures in a system that the elite desperately want to fill in. They definitely, they desperately want to try to stabilize and fix and so they're using their own apparatus against someone like donald trump as another kind of example of what we should be focusing on and how we should be thinking about global politics imperialism and also the trump phenomenon in u.s politics generally this is all about channeling our energies into believing that Donald Trump is this one singular enemy and that the reason why he's an enemy is not because he's an oligarch, not because he's a capitalist, not because he's someone who stokes, um, you know, an incredible amount of uh, uh, establishment politics, right? A, a kind of a reformed version, a different version of establishment politics, but we should dislike him because he's connected to Russia, which of course has never been the case right so that's what's happening and it's really disturbing because you see debates on the left you see what's happening all across uh, the democratic party sphere there is just an, an utter amount of confusion because the way that the so-called democratic party establishment the so-called left quote-unquote or liberals in the democratic party they're using this as a way to bolster American exceptionalism through the very class enemies and institutions that have targeted our movements for so many decades, for more than a century now. Uh, uh, this is absolutely criminal. This has been done with institutions like the CIA, the FBI, you have Dick Cheney, you have George W. Bush, but it continues to happen over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, we are being duped into believing that the FBI has some kind of high ground and that we should be supporting this. Because I even have people saying, well, Danny, you know, even though I'm not for the FBI, if the FBI does something good against someone I dislike or someone that I oppose, like Donald Trump, does that mean that the FBI is bad in this case? 
And the answer is always 100%. The FBI, the military intelligence state, is always against the class interests in every single particular case of the working class. And why is that? That's because anything that is done, even reforms are done in the name of maintaining the stability of this system and of this new Cold War imperialist drive. It's not for our benefit. So Donald Trump, these accusations of espionage and handling classified documents poorly or incorrectly will inevitably turn to another example uh, of how Donald Trump is some kind of Russian agent. There's no other way that this is going to go. That is a tired narrative, a propaganda narrative meant to get us away from the problems that actually reside in things like the Espionage Act, the fact that Julian Assange is being tortured because of it, the fact that there's a long history from the Bureau of Investigation to the FBI, which was a presidential directive in the 1930s, to uh, the FBI, which has terrorized communists, socialists, labor movement activists, black liberation movement activists and leaders and organizations, as well as their counterparts in the indigenous liberation movement, etc. That is the story of the FBI. That is the story of any kind of use of the Espionage Act. It is a real class struggle. And it any kind of internecine, any kind of conflict within the ruling class, like what's happening with Donald Trump and the Democrats, etc. That is never, that's never going to be good on the face of it for us unless we seize the moment to educate and organize people to take advantage of these divisions. That's the only time it is good for us. But if we watch it from the outside and we allow it to happen and we allow things to play out and say, well, the FBI is doing a good thing here this time then what ends up happening is that ruling class ideology, propaganda, strengthens. It strengthens in terms of its scope and its power to dictate and manipulate people into going down political paths, which absolutely have nothing to do with uh, our, hopefully, our causes of peace, of socialism, of anti-imperialism. So that's one thing. And then I just wanted to quickly quickly before I get to the two callers, so please do stick around. I wanted to quickly update you because it's been a little bit. Last time I talked, Nancy Pelosi had not even touched down in Taiwan. So she did on August 2nd. She stayed overnight. There was a lot of worries that China would respond in a way that was hostile, right? That was it, it would have been defensive in nature anyway, but there were concerns that what they how they would respond would maybe spark a war. Now, the way China responded is as follows. Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. She snuck in. She literally flew in military aircraft, backed up by Pentagon machinery, flew around the Philippines, landed in Taiwan at 10 p.m. August 2nd, and then stayed overnight, met with Tsai Ing-wen and the DPP authority talked about Taiwan as a country and that there's ironclad support for so-called quote-unquote democracy in Taiwan, did all of that, sounded absolutely ridiculous, sounded worse than Joe Biden, then left the next, then left that day and nothing happened to her. But China did respond on August 4th. China announced a series of measures. One, 
they conducted 72 hours worth of live fire military exercises surrounding Taiwan, showing that if the United States wants to provoke, break the law, and provoke war against China, literally break in half and rip up the basis for normalization between the two countries, that China can respond and and, and will respond. And, and these live fire drills showed that uh, China can easily, rapidly surround the island and prevent any kind of separatist move from happening. And then they broke off relations with the United States, China did, in key areas, climate change, defense coordination, uh, counter-narcotics, things like that, in, in eight different areas. So that was the response immediately. And then China has just announced that they are going to continue patrols uh, you know, in the Taiwan Straits for from here on out. So this is to be continued. The United States continues to say that it's China being the aggressive one, despite all facts to the contrary, uh, that China is the one upending the status quo, despite the fact that China has been a real diligent follower of the one China policy since its establishment uh, in 1971, first off, uh, with UN Resolution 2758. And then, of course, the three joint communiques, which the U.S. and China both are party to and both agreed to. And it's the United States militarizing the region, militarizing Taiwan, sending tens of billions of dollars of arms to the Taiwan Authority, a complete and egregious violation of the one China policy. Joe Biden constantly saying that the United States will intervene on behalf of Taiwan if China should, quote unquote, invade, despite no indication that China would ever do such a thing unless provoked. And then, of course, this trip by Nancy Pelosi, the third in command in the White House, if Biden or Harris were to go down, couldn't be president of the United States, she would be. So the one China policy says explicitly only unofficial visits, and this was a very official visit, and everything said that. So China is going to continue to respond, and thankfully, these measures are, you know, they're very reasonable, and they're ones that have a really big deterrent effect, and we will probably see that play out in the coming days and months. But with that said, everyone, I just want to give that quick update before we get to the conversation, because these are kind of these are the things that I've been talking about on my streams at the left lens. I just haven't had a chance to jump on afterward because I've been doing them later in the evening in preparation for construction work that's going to happen right next door to me, not 30 feet away. Don't get me started. Starting on Monday, so my capacity to come on. To, uh, after streams will be limited because I'll be streaming much later after work hours. All right. With that said, though, I'm going to get to the callers. We have two in the queue. I'm going to get to Petta and then Amanda is second. Hello, Petta Mio? Milo? Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi, uh, Danny. I just uh, wanted to say that I, um, I really like your streams i really like uh coming to your streams and um listening to what it is that you have to say i really think that what it is that you're doing and people like you are um very important to further building the movement and um yeah so um you mentioned julian assange 
what is it that you think will happen if it is that Julian Assange is extradited to the United States? Mm. Good question. Good question. I think there are many different scenarios if you were extradited to the United States. And all of them, I think, will depend on the political situation at that moment. Because on the one hand, right, and it's tough to know when he will actually be extradited, right? Because once, once that happens, right, once there's kind of the green light, which legally, quote unquote, there is, but uh, there's also other considerations uh, in terms of pulling the green light on this, especially when it comes to politics, elections, what people, um, how people feel about this in the terms of the public, how the media will be able to mobilize and respond in a way that's either favorable or unfavorable, because it's not so clear, right? That I mean, it's pretty clear that the corporate media will mainly stand with the extradition, right? But it's not so. There's a lot of going to be a lot of pressure on the corporate media too, because uh, this will burst asunder any kind of journalistic veneer that the corporate media has ever tried to have, and that's going to be problematic for for the corporate press. So, what will happen if he is extradited? I think there are a number of things that could happen. I think uh, that. One, he, I mean, one, he'll probably be immediately transferred to a, a max security here in the United States, it, which would be disastrous because the conditions in maximum securities here are just as bad, if not worse, than Belmarsh. And so I believe he will be immediately transferred there, probably immediately thrown in solitary confinement, given just how high profile of a case he is. And then from there, it's anybody's guess. Given the give it, if there's any pressure at all from the public, and then any pressure at all from the media, given perhaps some kind of judgment made based on the political situation in the United States. Maybe it's close to an election period. Maybe it's not. Uh, but if that were to happen, I do think that uh, it could be that there's a long delay. In litigating and figuring out how to, you know, it's probably going to be a military uh, trial, I'm sure, right, because of the nature of the charges. So it's unclear. It's, it will be even more not untransparent than the general so-called justice system. And... I think that the only two options short of massive intense pressure from the movement would be he remains in prison the rest of his life, right? In a federal prison or a military prison, what what have you, or he uh, is, is killed, you know, or he's executed death penalty that that would be very extreme. That would call that would make Julian Assange's case become an instant political issue uh, uh you know and would really hope you know i think that would really bolster a lot of the work that people have done on freeing julian assange so it may not be the first or at least the, the closest and soonest uh, uh action taken by the u.s government but i could see it going either way and i think a lot of this will depend on the pressure that people put uh, as this is happening 
now the pressure is uh, it's somewhat present, but it's I would say it's lukewarm. You know, there's definitely not uh, among the left. There's not a lot of appetite for this to happen. But then again, there's also not an incredible amount of organization, and and I think that's because. Unfortunately, a lot of democratic socialists, a lot of liberals, a lot of people on that spectrum who fall maybe within the Democratic Party or on the line of it have been the primary targets of the propaganda against Julian Assange, uh, especially around the Donald Trump connection, the Russia connection. Uh, There's no better way at this moment to demonize someone than to put them in a category with Donald Trump uh, or and or Russia, right? That's that's kind of what's been happening. So so that's what I think. Oh, we got we got plenty of callers in the queue. So thank you, uh, Patamila, for that um, question. I'm going to get to Amanda now. Crashed. Um, I don't know if. Uh, okay. Um, anyway. The app crashed for a second, but Patamilo, thank you. Um, I'm going to get to the next caller if I can. (sighs) But keep, (laughs) stick around. Um, Oh, I was trying to get to Amanda, and now Amanda is gone. Uh, Amanda, if you want to come back into the queue, please do. I'm trying to figure this out. Um... Oh, there you are. Okay, Amanda's back in the queue. Oh, gee. As I try to get people into the queue. Um, I don't know what to say. Uh, I'm trying to... Uh, I'm going to try to close things. I don't think it's just me. Because a lot of... Uh, Big Teal said that her app crashed as well. Um, I'm going to try to get to Tyler. You are the next caller. I'm sorry, Amanda. I don't know why uh, the app kept crashing when trying to get you here. Um, please do come back maybe in a few. For some reason, every time I click on you, you're I guess you're special. <laughs> but Tyler, I'll get to you, and then um, I'll keep going. And then Amanda, if you want to come back in the queue, please, please do. I have no idea. This, uh, this app can be very buggy. So Tyler, you're the next caller. Hey, Danny. How are you? Pretty good, you know. Um, um, I was going to say, if you need a second to close out all your apps and log back on, I'm happy to be patient and to yield my spot to Amanda. <laughs> No, I don't know if that's it because I'm having people um I'm having people say that they clicked on her profile too and it's crashing, but yet when I do yours or other folks it seems like it's fine. Huh. So that's I don't cool. know what that is about, but um I definitely want Amanda to come back if if they can. So um all right. Um okay, so I love your work, Danny. I'm super grateful. I know you get all kinds of hate online, so I want to make sure I give you a little love every time I talk to you. Um, so thank you. Uh, I, I'm going to try and pull together a couple of threads here from stories over recent weeks and, and get your kind of take on it, because um, mm-hmm. I appreciate your, your kind of macro picture view on the media landscape. And so like this, this is something I've thought for a while, but uh, that article a few weeks back from Ryan Graham about progressive institutions eating themselves from inside out, 
um, and, you know, taking weeks and weeks off to deal with, you know, internal staff squabbling issues. Um, and I know people have their opinions on Ryan Grimm, but I, I thought that I thought that article, I found that article to be particularly insightful entry from him. Um, and, uh, and, and, it, and it spoke to something I've kind of thought about for a while, which is this idea of like the more, you know, power and influence, media purchase, visibility and money we give these kind of left leaning progressive institutions, the more people kind of become invested in them at an institutional level. Right. And, 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 a, and a personal gain level like like and, and it sort of starts to create these per- perverse incentives. Right. Like, for example, if your, uh, you know, organization is one that pays you a six figure salary and you've been working in it your entire professional life and you're middle aged and don't want to restart your career and you're focused on climate change. Well, like, imagine what would happen if you actually like, got all your goals done and you solved climate change and it wasn't a problem anymore. You'd, you'd be out of a job, right? Like you'd need to go find something to do that didn't, you know, have any, I mean, sure you'd have skills that would transfer over, but you'd need to reboot your career midlife. And like a lot of people don't want to do that because they have kids and mortgages and things and they're comfortable in the kinds of institutional reality that they're, they're in. So they're much more comfortable to have these problems remain plaguing people and causing human suffering around the globe uh, and, you know, going to work every day and quote unquote fighting against them and allowing that kind of reality to perpetuate in perpetuity without uh, actually coming to any kind of beneficial resolution. And so as I see stories like, uh, you know, the Assange case and the saber rattling for war that you, that you kind of opened with, I kind of wonder like, what what institution and like who is benefiting uh on that institutional level uh from the media's focus being directed here at this point in time right because like you know those those that 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 story that Grimm wrote uh, again he's not he's 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 had his history he it's a phenomenon that going is going on for a, a, a long time, and it was relatively it was worded in a way that's you know typically milk toast. But also, he was the only person that even like looked at that phenomenon recently in a serious way. And like this is you know this if we actually want to make progress, if we actually want to like you know move policy in a way that's progressive. Like it seems like these progressive institutions are ab- actually more of an obstacle than they are a, you know, a, an actual source of, of making progress. And I kind of want to get your, your thoughts on that perspective in the court, in the, in the, in the context of these stories that you're talking about today. And after that monologue, I will uh, log off and let people get their, get their say. Thanks. Uh, one clarification. Uh, could you clarify what progressive institutions in particular uh, just, yeah. Uh, uh, Grim, Grim didn't name a lot by, uh, by name, but he, he cited this example of, you know, the Dobbs case comes out, he contacts a, uh, a, a women's rights, specifically abortions for focused organization. That's a major player in the space, multimillion dollar organization, you know, tries to contact them for common coalition building, uh, on the, on the Dobbs case and is to- told in a reply email from staff that they're taking the next eight weeks to focus on internal staff, 
you know, uh, 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 kind of kind of personal progressive issues, right? And it's like this is when we need, you know, left leaning women's rights issues the most. You know, right after Dobbs, and like, okay, let's all band together. Let's uh, let's create a plan for responding to this. We have, you know, institutional leadership organizations in place already. The immediate thought is turn to them for sort of a source of like, what's the direction we're all going to pull in as a response? And they take literally eight weeks off to like deal with their own internal kind of squabbling. And so it seems like if you were really trying to like actually move the needle on a policy level on women's rights and progressive, you know, and, 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 uh, and reproductive rights, you, you would think, okay, our internal staff squabblings can be dealt with in a couple of days or put on the back burner, especially while the Dobbs. Gotcha. Is it no, right? No, like, now I'm now, I, now I get it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, this is a very good question. I mean, in, in particular to these issues that I'm speaking about, I mean, what's interesting about a the abortion struggle, right, is that most, while it's an, an incredibly relevant and and certainly uh, widely known, understood, and, and people from across the political spectrum have opinions about it, while that is certainly the case, as you point out in this, just that, that, that one example, the organizations, as you said, the progressive institutions, yeah, they 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 have a particular character to them, and, and I think I think a problem that we face uh, is that you know there are decades upon decades, if not you know more than that, you know, of this kind of institutional response to something like abortion, you know, people struggling for it, winning victories, but also just like any struggle, you have the establishment, you have the political class, you have the ruling class also responding, right, in this kind of give and take. And I think, especially over the last 40, 50 years, one of the biggest struggles that we've had on the left is the fact that in the absence and, and ultimately the destruction, like the, the outright and downright repression of organized labor, uh, uh, at least the militant side of organized labor, uh, but really overall, in the absence of other grassroots organizations that can su- survive and sustain repression, what has taken the place of those is bigger nonprofits, NGOs, organizations that uh, no matter how much we think they do good work, they ultimately end up needing to placate donors. I mean, that's I, I mean that's been my experience every time I've worked in social services, and certainly when the issues become uh, even more politically charged, that that phenomenon is either more extreme or these organizations don't exist at all. We don't really have progressive institutions, quote unquote, that are willing to stand up for Julian Assange, right? That's like a that's like an issue that's untouchable for a lot of organizations. Even organizations like the ACLU or organizations that are dedicated to um, you know, civil liberties, many of them, most of them, if not all of them, won't touch this because of how uh, politicized it is uh, when it comes to intelligence and it comes to uh, the most powerful forces within the political class. So 
uh, I think that's one of the big issues is that on the one hand, we have, um, on the one hand, we have uh, issues that because of years of struggle and because of uh, their nature and their capacity after years of struggle to be kind of whittled down into single issue moments, the ruling class has a particular response for those. Institute organizational organizations and institutions that feed people into a cycle. Uh, A cycle of people are angry about something and they turn to what exists, which is mainly uh, usually Democratic Party aligned, but just politically aligned and funded and sometimes corporate funded organizations that are doing the work in the way that they want to see it done. And and then on the other hand, there are issues like, let's say, the new Cold War, where there aren't any institutions, progressive quote-unquote institutions, established ones that can say 501c3 or c4 or whatever. There aren't really any that are addressing them at all. And I think this points to the, the, the gap in grassroots organization. One of the things that I think was such a shame about what happened in 2016 and 2020 both Sanders phenomenon, the squad, and then of course the uprisings, Black Lives Matter, is that there there was this work happening, but it wasn't deep enough and it wasn't widespread enough that the grassroots character of it was not organized in a sense that was different, right? There was alternatives that, that were able to be built and that allowed the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, for example, or just, you know, Justice Democrats, Democratic Party aligned institutions to, to calibrate and to uh, kind of keep a lot of this energy in that milieu and in that, that realm. And that doesn't serve. I know that Ryan Graham probably wouldn't go this far, but that to me doesn't serve our interests. Like we have to find ways to be independent from this political establishment. Not anarchistically, but in an organized way. We need to find ways to, to, to be more organized in that way. And I'm going to get to, just for the interest of time, I'm going to get to William because we have three more callers. Um, but, you know, if I have time at the end, I can get back to uh, to you, Tyler. Uh, but, William, you are the next caller. William, if you are not available right now, um, but stick around and I will get back to you. Um, next caller is Fantomas. Uh, you are now able to speak. Hello. Good day, Danny. I just have a couple question for you uh, regarding everything that's happening. What do you mm-hmm. think is the next step that we do as the left? What would be the the the, the 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 primary step that you would think that we would need to do other than organizing that's what i would like to ask you hmm. okay well i mean i know this does involve a bit of organizing but i would say um we need to establish an alternative to the democratic party and if it isn't organizing at first then it is pushing a kind of clear vision for what that would be 
uh, I think that, of course, that would have a political party element to it just to establish that institution. But I, I do think that we need to figure out a way to be clear about what it means to have a left vision independent of the Democratic Party. Because right now that vision is not clear. And I will say that even many people on the left who are independent of the Democratic Party, because they don't have necessarily that clear of a vision of it, it can become a lot of kind of pandering and, okay, you know, going with trends and looking at, okay, well, MAGA people say this, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene says this, and that means that because it's right, that we have to say, welcome to the left club. Like, that's not how it works, in my opinion. I think that... Uh, on the one hand, I'm not going to say Marjorie Taylor Greene is wrong for wanting to abolish the FBI or criticize the FBI. No, that's not where I would come from. I don't think, you know, uh, 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 I think that we can both understand and just acknowledge that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are opportunists and, and that, you know, most MAGA establishment folks, all of them are opportunists in uh, establishment. But the primary point here is that uh, people need to be directed in a leftward direction. So if we're going to do that, then we have to have a clear vision of what that means. It doesn't just mean, yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene is right, but then explaining right, how the FBI, how U.S. intelligence operates, and how it isn't targeting primarily the right, how it is really about targeting the left. And why would it target the left? If you want people to stop hating leftists, then you can talk about why it targets the left. It doesn't do it because of liberty and freedom and that we're all totalitarians and we want authoritarianism. No, it's because we want to fight for the things that all people need regardless of what their ideological, political spectrum is. And if they continue to hold on to their reactionary, right-wing, whatever, politics of all variations then that's on them. But we have to first explain that this is why the left has been repressed by forces like the FBI. This is why we would like to abolish the FBI. It's not because uh, it's targeting Donald Trump. Like That's a political theater. But it's because the FBI has murdered people, lynched people who fought for justice, fought for peace, fought for... Uh, basic needs and human rights that everyone deserves, you know? And, and so that's, I think that's the next step is being able to articulate what that vision is clearly. Uh, I think that does take some organization. Uh, if it comes to the media, I think it means coming together and trying to hash out and understand what is a unified message that we can have in the media around certain issues. Uh, uh, rather than the go-it-alone model, in the, uh, in the organized sense, it means f uh, figuring out, drawing up, who are going to be the forces who draw up. Well, here's what an alternative to the Democratic Party at least should believe in. That's what we should promote. And then we should talk about, well, what kind of institutions do we need to build to make those beliefs, make those values, those principles and politics uh, materialize? How do we do that? Um, so a good question. I'm going to get to uh, Joshua and then I'm going to try you, Amanda, before, at, <laughs> but uh, hopefully it does not crash this time. But uh, Joshua, you are the next caller. 
right, well, that work, it has been buggy for the last two weeks. Um, anyway, um, I just wanted to bring up something that I've been struggling with in my local activism and organizing is I have a lot of alignment, especially with the anti-war and the peace movement and the uh, veterans within the libertarian side of the equation um, on a lot of issues. Um, you know, one of those that, you know, this is domestic policy. I've covered foreign policy already this week too much, and so have you uh, very well today. Um, but is COVID and the weaponization of that within the left and the fact that there was just so much money that you were awash in if you went along with completely the COVID narrative that a lot of left organizations, nonprofits, and or otherwise, like, they would have been dumb not to just go along with that narrative because the money flowed. Um, but in regards to body autonomy, like there is a discussion to be had and we will, it's like, we're not willing to have it. I mean, I'm a little bit nervous about bringing it up, but I see if we're going to have a viable third party, you know, and a league of independent voters live, that can be a trademark now, but it's more Amanda's idea than mine. Uh, I think we need to start thinking and talking about these issues because otherwise they're just going to continue to weaponize them against us. Um, and there's a lot more agreement, I think, if you have these conversations on the things that are most important to all of us. And I think you can just have like, you can't be a white supremacist. Like that's the bar. Like if that's who you are, like you can't join. Right. Um, and we will figure that out. Um, but I just wanted to bring, bring that up and get your thoughts on it. Um, before we uh, before you sign off, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, thanks yeah. for well, thanks the for um, thanks for uh, for those thoughts. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, my 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 opinion on COVID has been pretty consistent from the beginning. Like, I am not, you know, uh, because this issue has been weaponized so much. You know, I've never been like anti-government response. Uh, or that you know we shouldn't have taken it seriously, and that we should have pretty uh, uh, you know have measures that protect people's lives and livelihoods. Like I've always had that position, I still do. I also think though that we have to be able to talk to people who are mistrustful of government, of the United States government, and we have to be able to talk about why it is i think this is the principal contradiction for me so the old mao uh, on contradiction um where he talks about what principal contradictions are meaning the main issue the main struggle at hand and then secondary contradictions which uh, are important but certainly uh, uh, fall below what needs to be addressed first and so here i think the principal contradiction with covid has always been why is there so much mistrust in a government response in the United States? And what did that response even look like? And how do we articulate what a response to a pandemic would, what, what, what would have been reasonable if we were to have political power? And, and of course, you know, I don't have the answers for what the United States 100% should have done. I think emulating uh, various policies uh, 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 that were successful in places like China and even Venezuela would have been great. I was talking on Jimmy Dore's show at the height of the pandemic. I said, 
Venezuela is able to pay people. Venezuela is under starvation sanctions, able to pay people to stay home. And this is despite not having the medical equipment and supplies that uh, they need to address this. But why is it that Venezuela can take care of uh, people and the United States cannot? So I think a lot of the mistrust stems from that. And when it comes to things like vaccines and masks and all of this, all of that should be uh, there should be more capacity to be able to involve the public and the people to understanding, one, whether these policies are working or not, and two, uh, uh, how to get the buy-in so that people feel like it is a, a collective responsibility. And I think that because the United States had to rush to make vaccines, pump these big uh, pharma uh, corporations with all sorts of money and contracts, and uh, uh, also with all of the mixed messaging about masking and all of this. And then, of course, we know Fauci's February debacle before uh, people knew that the spread of COVID was so widespread in the United States, talking about, oh, only wear a mask if you have symptoms, you know, just blatantly lying to people about what the truth is. Of course, you're going to have a massive amount of distrust. So for me, you know, I see on all sides, right, of this issue, there needs to be, I think, a reckoning of, on the one hand, there is legitimate mistrust in the United States' government in the fact that its response is so poor. And on the other hand, there is also a strong anti-just general government sentiment of not wanting any kind of response because, I don't know, it would be bad for business or it would be bad for them. And, and because the response was so terrible in the United States, so horrific, a lot of forces who have what I think is misconceived idea that, you know, there shouldn't be any state response just abstractly in a pandemic, uh, it was realized it was made real for people because people were hurting economically. People got hurt incredibly uh, during the economic crisis that transpired over the course of the pandemic. So of course, that's like just matching up. That's making, that's matching ideology with reality, right? And that was the doing of the establishment. And in my opinion, it's been my opinion since the beginning, a lot of this chaos and confusion was driven by the United States' imperialist policy toward China. Because China took a very concrete, very strict, very centralized response to COVID-19 and was largely successful, uh, not without consequences. And certainly now, you know, two and a half years later, uh, certainly not quote-unquote perfect. Nothing is, but the protection of human life was prioritized. And uh, that's allowed the economy to continue to grow, and that's allowed for social stability. And uh, it's not without its annoyances, its inconveniences, and its excesses. But nonetheless, we can't have a discussion about, well, what is right a leftist position on this? And what would have been, for me, what would have been the correct way forward from the very beginning it's hard to have that conversation now because it has been so politicized and because it has been so weaponized and now we can't acknowledge all of the various points on all sides 
that we need to kind of bring together in a coherent ideological and political approach to pandemics because this won't be the only one guys i'm I, I hate to say it guys girls and everyone else you know to acknowledge the gender non-conforming folks transports everyone this isn't going to be the only this isn't going to be the only time this happens uh there will probably be i'm 32 there will probably be more pandemics in my lifetime i hate to say it so uh, we've got to we've we've got to do better about this, and so I re- I do appreciate the question because that's that's my opinion. But I'm never going to even if there's disagreements about it for this issue especially because the the atmosphere about it is so toxic. I'm never going to just discount like there's no points on any side. I think all sides have their points. I just think that there's not cohesion among the correct ones. That can lead us to a vision for how to how the left approaches uh, a pandemic. So, um, Amanda, if I go on mute, guys, for a few seconds, it means that uh, I have crashed again. So I'm going to see if I can get to Amanda now. And, uh, that's making me crash, and now she's out of the or she. I don't know your pronouns. But um, only you, Amanda. I hate to target <laughs> in the queue. Are are you on? I'll, I can spend a minute or two on this. Are you on a particular device or um? Because to me, this isn't making sense. I close all my other apps. Nothing. Everyone else has worked. Okay. Well, I'm on a OnePlus Android. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I I, I would ho- surely hope not. I'm sure other people. Or on iPhones. Um, I believe I updated the app. I believe I did. Amanda, do you want to type your question into the chat? Um, maybe that could help. Um, I believe I'm all updated. There's always updates, so I could have missed it. I don't think so. I feel like I would have a lot more issues right now. If not, but Amanda, you can type it into the chat, okay? And, and I'm sorry, I really wish I could accommodate. Um, and I don't know if Tyler or Petta, you're still in the queue. I'm gonna put you in. Um, how about you, uh, uh, Petta first? Uh, do you have any follow up to what I what I've said in response to you? Um. Well, I mean. It just kind of, I think that when it is, you know, a lot of other people have said it, but I think that it sets a dangerous precedent if it is that Julian Assange, I mean, it already does, because I mean, he's been locked up for like two, three years, and I mean, just, you know, how many other people have done like actually objectively terrible things like, you know, our presidents, you know, they like get away with all of the terrible things that they do, like, like all the other people, but like one person that, you know, says that like the Afghanistan war is just like a money siphoning scheme, like, and then, and then he's just locked up. You know, how many, how many other people have like do make lies daily for Mm. the United States 
and I mean, none of them get imprisoned, but like this one person who doesn't even live within the United States, he lived in like, yeah. like an Australian citizen. He's an Australian citizen, yeah. And I mean, so it, it's just, yeah, I, I think yeah. that it's just like the, the, it's just, it's, it's just, it's kind of bad. It's criminal hypocrisy. Um, Peta, I'm going to um I'm going to move on to uh uh Amanda Thank question. Thank she put it in the chat and then I'm going to um get to another caller. But thanks for your uh contribution today. Thank you. So um Amanda says maybe I have her blocked. I don't think so. Uh, uh, I would have to, I don't know if I can check that now, but your question was, um, it was, um, what are the eight measures that China took diplomatically, um, to cut off, you know, in terms of severing ties with the United States. And I can, I can list those. So, um, here are the eight measures guys. So a lot of these, uh, to, to, I a lot of especially around defense, these weren't things that were necessarily public. These were things that were happening as channels of communication. So first, there are um, three matters of defense coordination. Canceled was the China-U.S. defense policy coordination talks. Also, the China-U.S. military maritime consultative agreement and um, the China U.S. Theater Commanders talk. So these are all just defense coordination channels that, um, as China said, and they were very clear. They said this militarization has risks, and China is not going to bear the responsibility for what the United States is doing. So that's one of the reasons they've decreased talks. Now, a caveat to this: you might think China's being totally unreasonable here. Why wouldn't you want to talk to even if the United States is being so aggressive in the region toward you militarily? Why wouldn't you want to talk to them, you know, to avoid accidents? Well, one, the ch- there are still channels available. So if there truly is um, something afoot that needs to be addressed, uh, the defense ministers of both countries can talk to each other on an emergency basis. Oh. The United States as defense secretary, but Lloyd Austin and and China's defense minister, the PLA, can talk to each other. And of course, the heads of state can still communicate because the heads of state, both Xi Jinping and um, Joe Biden, Joe Biden more so, has, you know, command responsibilities. So that so that's that's what happened. It's pretty big. And then you have China, U.S. suspended. You have five different areas. So this is not permanently canceled. This is just suspended. China-U.S. cooperation on the repatriation of um, immigrants, of uh, quote-unquote illegal immigrants. Uh, Also suspended is China-U.S. cooperation on legal assistance and criminal matters. China-U.S. cooperation against transnational crimes. This one has gotten talking points from the the hard far right. has got them really supercharged, and that is China-U.S. counter-narcotics cooperation. 
the GOP is trying to make this connection that China doing this is somehow a uh, an indication that China wants to poison the United States with uh, uh, opiate opiate addiction. Now, most opiate uh, use and uh, narcotics production actually does not occur in China. So, um, you know, or at least the smuggling of it does not occur in China. The United States bears a lot of responsibility for its its own issues, right? This isn't a huge widespread issue in China, for example. So this is just one way China has said, yeah, we're not going to cooperate on this anymore. Uh, you need to figure out your own problems. And the same with climate change. So they've suspended US any US-China talks on climate change, which is also significant and has definitely definitely raised questions and i think you know it's interesting to raise questions about well why would you do that don't don't you know aren't you for the reduction in climate change aren't you trying to um aren't you trying to uh, be a leader in this struggle to preserve the natural environment and I just want to say this, that the United States has been a terrible partner on climate change. The United States has weaponized it against China, has tr- tried to undermine literal climate change reduction policy by sanctioning renewable energy uh, 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 production in China. Um, the United States is not a good partner on climate change. So what has happened is that uh, China said, well, we wanted to work with you. We still want to work with you. But because that you're, you're literally provoking war, not just a cold war, but a hot war in, around Taiwan, there are consequences to that. So China will continue to do what it wants to do and how it's pursuing a reduction in climate change, while uh, the United States now is not going to be privy to those talks. So it's an interesting move. Of course, it has risks because the propaganda is is really at an all time high, and it's always it's going to be uh, blame China, blame China, blame China for this. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, that's that's what happened. So those are the eight measures. They're pretty significant, although they're not going to be talked about in this way. Um, but uh, I'm going to get to Saleh. I don't know if I'm saying it right. But you'll be the last call. I don't see anyone else in the queue. So let's do this. Thanks, Amanda. Sorry about that. I don't think I have you blocked. I, I think I would remember if I blocked you. I don't know why I would either. Um, okay. Here you go, Saleh. Okay. Saleh, you are in and ready. Yeah. Hi. So that's a warning. We have to be nice with you, or you block us. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I I do that very sparingly. I mean, I do it more on Twitter now, to be honest, because a lot of people, yes, trolls are like reporting. They're like reporting me, so it's like, no, I'm not even going to give you the opportunity. But anyway, okay. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question, considering that the U.S. is making now exercises. In this region, to or at least it's what I heard. What is what are your thoughts about military Keynesianism? I don't think I said the word right. Keynes, you know, you know the theory about uh, 
like what happened after the Second World War, mm -hmm. Keynes have this theory about, you know, the same that he has about putting money in the economy, but doing it through military and considering that uh, the U.S. is in a really bad, like having this in big inflation plus some stagnation, and mm -hmm. etc. I don't have to tell you. Um, is this uh, this would be a very faster way out of it? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, do you have any more to your to your? Question? No, no. I just wanted to know. No, that's there was a good this one. This Argentinian reporter, this Argentinian economist, that said that, and I was wondering. He doesn't know much about. I mean, he asked, actually asked that. He doesn't know much about, but he doesn't do uh, international politics so okay. i was wondering what you thought about that yeah yeah no that's really i think that's a really great place to um to end today thanks for the, the questions my thoughts are this yeah world war ii it, it's a very interesting example because during world war ii that's exactly what happened uh, i mean the united states had for decades been building up to a moment where it could become a hegemon, where it could become the superpower. And it was already fueling this military-industrial complex that really exploded after World War II. But World War II was like the uh, – it was fertile ground for the United States to build up militarily its general industry. It was almost like an, a second industrial revolution, so to speak. And uh, you're – Correct and kind of making the military Keynesianism uh, a conclusion because although there were hard fought battles and struggles during the economic crisis from 29 to uh, literally after World War II, that's how long it lasted. But from that economic collapse came, uh, of course, a lot of genuine grassroots labor struggles. That did pressure the government to and and the ruling class to provide concessions, but those concessions were built off of a wider pie that was produced through a lot of uh, military production. I mean, that was a big part of of how the United States' economy came out of the Great Depression, and it cannot be denied because afterward we saw how the U.S.'s military footprint would explode and how these investments were then used both during the war and afterwards. So with that said, though, now is, I think, a different situation, a different situation. Uh, and, and the reason why it's a difference. I mean, I do think that this military Keynesianism ended with the war on Vietnam. So the invasion of Vietnam actually did precipitate the rudiments of another economic crisis because everything that has to do with capital, whenever we're talking about capital, whether it's military, contracting, any kind of production under capitalism, when it comes to capital, it the driving force is underconsumption and overproduction. It's to expand, to maximize profits, uh, regardless of how that impacts the contradictions of the system. And so the invasion of Vietnam already, at, by this time, outstretched the U.S. military and was already dislocating and creating shockwaves in the United States' capitalist economy. 
and, and there was an economic crisis that that would happen that a lot of people say was kind of self-imposed uh, with the you know the the OPEC oil crisis but a lot of its rudiments had to do with the U.S.'s uh, uh, ceaseless and, and very rapid uh, militarist expansionism. Now that is even more uh, pumped with steroids and, of course, trillions of dollars, what's transpired over the last 70 years. And, and of course, the last, what is it now, uh, 50, 40-something years since the end of the invasion of Vietnam, this situation has not improved. Uh, they glut the 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 uh, uh, military expansionism has only become more costly has only become more of a I think a fetter as Marx would call it a fetter on production. Uh, you have such an overemphasis on this and such a, a a a symbiotic relationship with finance capital that. It really is an elephant in the room now. It's no longer that this kind of militarism will produce economic stability, but this militarism is, is not really about that anymore. Uh, there isn't a kind of drive to produce for a war that will get people jobs. Now it's a drive to produce for endless war that will satisfy the bottom line of military contractors and their investors in finance capital. That, that is what the driving force is. And so uh, a lot of this production is either outmoded or being mechanized to the point where labor is not really, um, is not really fundamental or as fundamental as it, as, as it was during the second world war. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's only causing, I think, more of a of a basis for for these crises. Um, it's it's kind of an unspoken root of the economic crises that we've seen in the past since two thousand seven, two thousand eight, is the fact that the United States has this not an obsession, but has this requirement to uh, boost and bloat its military footprint. And that creates uh, shockwaves. And it, and it also produces an effect, which I think is very interesting. So in the past, after the Second World War, the United States expanded its military footprint to try to wrangle and maintain the colonies of Europe, right? To super exploit them as neo-colonies. That was a huge strategy as to how to... Uh, create the basis for its superpower status and how to maintain it from there on out. Make Europe and the former colonizers, colonial powers, make them junior partners, uh, make them under the put them under the auspices of U.S. rule and diktats, and then take their booty from them. Essentially, take it from them, and that's what uh, the United States did. But now the situation is different. Now I, I like to say that. During the Cold War, it was imperialism's attempt to divide, to continue the division of the world, right? And the, the primary way to do that was to stop anti-colonial movements and socialist movements from victory. So to continue the division of the world on that basis. But the world has come out of that divided already. Uh, and the United States has used post -cold, the post-Cold War environment to uh, cement and to basically go everywhere and anywhere 
uh, to assert dominance. And now the struggle is how the world is going to be governed. How is it going to be governed in this particular situation? And U.S. wars create systemic ungovernability. These wars have no potential to wrestle any kind of stability necessary for the uh, interests of business to be satisfied. That is what's very interesting about these wars. Uh, I mean, sure, you have in Syria, for example, 80% of Syria's oil being stolen right up from under that. And surely there are people making lots of profits off of that. But the war on Syria also has incredible costs and has become a quagmire, one that the United States refuses to disengage with. But it's one that is not a winnable, or quote-unquote winnable war. And that means that the full scope of Syria and even the broader region is kind of semi-off-limits in a sense. Sure, you can sanction Syria into starvation, but that won't create the kind of opportunities that imperialism generally likes to have when it comes to wars, which is opening up that market for full and total exploitation. Now it's more so full and total destruction for full-spectrum dominance, and that has costs. Uh, the big cost is, for example, with China, on the one hand, you can militarize the absolute shit out of the region. You can provoke war with China. But now you're actually hurting the cooperation, the economic basis for a relationship. You're hurting any possibility for China to become this free, quote unquote, market that will uh, serve the diktats, diktats of imperialism. You're actually hurting business interests. And so there's a big contradiction here that is only going to sharpen. And I think that war Keynesianism, military Keynesianism, the, the so-called uh, uh, you know, war economy that uh, can uh, build, and I think a lot of the Western left has built a lot of their ideology off of this, um, the so-called idea that you can support U.S. wars and... Um, also get benefits out of it that era has ended that era ended during world war ii it ended right after that because right after it even though there were concessions given what did the united states do it went on a mccarthyist red scare beginning with the taft hartley after 1947 and completely dismembered organized labor purged communists and then of course went on a vicious assault globally and domestically on anyone considered socialist, leftist, uh, and communist. So that's that, that era ended then. And uh, since then, we've been struggling with a, a kind of a slow rolling decline of the American empire, which is undergirded by an outstretched military economy and just capitalist economy in general, which cannot and will not uh, provide what people need and want in this era. Uh, so, so thank you for the question. I thought it was good. It's a very big one. Um, and so ooh, I'm trying to get into the chat, um, see if there's any other questions. Nope. No questions in the chat. Um, with that said, though, everybody, we are over the hour mark. I think I'm going to close up here. So, of course, make sure that you are supporting Cold War Brew 
podcast, okay? Uh, do that by uh, following the show. Of course, sharing this around. And, um, of course, the way you can support me in all of my work, because I do this, Cold War Brew is just one of the many things I do. Other things I do, I co-edit Friends of Socialist China, socialistchina.org. I host The Left Lens on YouTube, which I think a link is posted to this episode for you all to catch up with my wider discussion on these issues. Um, so I do live streams a couple times a week, post clips, etc. Um, and I write very frequently. Was writing weekly, that's kind of uh, uh, been a little too hard to manage with regular streaming. So I am, uh, but it still is almost weekly that I'm also writing analyses, op-eds, and whatnot, commenting on these very same issues. So you can support all that work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifang. You can find that in the uh, uh, link on my profile um, on where to support my work. All right, everyone. Um, Thank you so much for coming today. Um, I will close out by just saying, you know, I will try to be on tomorrow. I'm also, you know, I want to get guests on here too. But um, that's been difficult to schedule because as you can see, I've had a hard time getting a single date down. But I definitely want to start getting guests on here. I do want to pay it forward to those who've had me on their program as well. Uh, So be on the lookout for that in future episodes, probably closer to the fall, end of summer, that that will happen. But as I catch up, um, be on the lookout in the next few days. I should be on here again. So be sure to subscribe so you know when I'm going live. All right, everyone. It was good. Take care. Peace out. And, um, oh, and happy birthday, Fidel Castro. Happy birthday. I almost forgot. Happy birthday to Fidel Castro. And, um, yeah, be well, everyone, and, and keep... Keep on keeping on in this struggle. Bye-bye.